I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. You can also find uh, the passage printed on that second piece of paper in the uh, next to your bulletins, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. We're continuing to take a break from our uh, study of 2 Samuel, and we are uh, during the season of Advent, looking at uh, various places in the Old Testament that uh, tell us about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9 and what Isaiah tells us about the light of the world, uh, the light of the world coming into the darkness. So listen as I read to you from chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of it for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you as we do every week and ask for you to help us to understand your word. Open our eyes and our ears to receive it. We pray, Father, that we would not just simply read it, but that you would give us an understanding into it. And it wouldn't just be for our knowledge's sake, but that as we understand what your word says, as we, as we see your grace to us in the gospel once again, that you indeed would empower us and motivate us to live as your people in this world, as you call us to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. December 1914. It's about five months into what would become World War I. The battles that had taken place already in the first five months had been fierce and bloody. It was definitely a time of darkness in the world. And by December, both German and British troops had dug in well into trenches that, uh, that were along what was called the Western Front. But in the midst of uh, the bloody battles, in the midst of the darkness that was being experienced in the world at that time, something very interesting took place. Light broke into the darkness, even if just for a moment. Christmas Eve, 1914. Along parts of the Western Front, it began with German soldiers who started lighting candles and putting them up along the trench line and placing them in trees around the trenches. They began singing Christmas carols. 
British soldiers across the way in their trenches reciprocated by singing more Christmas carols. And at one point, all of the men in that area were singing together Silent Night. Guns silenced and the fighting stopped. Christmas greetings were shouted from one trench line to the other and back again. And eventually soldiers ventured out of their trenches and met one another in the middle of no man's land, exchanging gifts of cigarettes and chocolate and sausages and plum pudding. It was even said that at one point some German soldiers rolled some barrels of beer that they had taken from a French brewery into the middle of no man's land so that they could enjoy it together. They were told that the Germans and the British agreed that the French beer tasted awful. (laughs) Time was given in order to retrieve the dead and the injured and to bring them back to their own sides. And there was even an impromptu soccer game that broke out uh, using tin cans and and, uh, halfway filled sandbags. The truce lasted through Christmas Eve and into Christmas Day. But as the sun began to set... The men returned to their trenches and took up their arms once again. And after saluting one another from the trench line and firing several shots into the air in recognition of the sense of common brotherhood that they had experienced, the war continued. In total, between the military and civilians, 21 million would be wounded. 20 million would be killed. Incredible darkness in the history of our world. But just for that short period of time, light broke into the darkness and there was a sense of peace and hope and even joy among men who just hours before had been aiming at one another with the sights of their gun. But eventually, the light went out. Isaiah is telling us about another time in the history of the world when a light would shine into what he calls the deep darkness of the world. He's giving a prophecy of not just any light, not just a truce in war, but of the greatest light coming into the darkness of the world, the arrival of the long-promised Messiah. And when this light would come into the world the light of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, it would be a light that would never be extinguished. It would go into the darkness and defeat the darkness and eventually eliminate the darkness in every aspect completely from our world. So today we're looking at another example of Jesus being proclaimed in the Old Testament. The light of the world that came into the darkness of the world to defeat it and to send it away. I want us to look at three things as we reflect on Isaiah's words here. First of all, the need for the light to come into the world, both then as it was uh, in Isaiah chapter 9's days, but also for us today. So the need of the light to come into the world. And then we'll look at the provision that was given in the light. And then lastly, we'll finish by uh, by looking and seeing how the whole thing uh, was accomplished. So first of all, the need. Now, the time that we're reading about here in Isaiah 9 was a a time of great darkness for the people of God. 
As we talked earlier, Jeremiah chapter 10, uh, Jeremiah was speaking into similar contexts, similar situations, and speaking about the idolatry that was rampant, uh, not just among foreign cultures, but among the people of God. And the time was indeed a time of darkness, and it's actually how it's described in the verses right before the passage that we've read for in Isaiah 9. At the end of chapter 8, we read these words. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This was a this was a time of darkness in the history of the world and the history of God's people. The northern tribes of Israel had been conquered and carried away into exile. The people of the southern kingdom of Judah had also turned away from the Lord. Isaiah was warning them that exile would be their judgment if they did not turn back to the Lord as well. Idolatry was prevalent by the people of God. They were seeking mediums and necromancers as opposed to getting the word of the Lord from God himself. And all they were, although they were warned and pleaded with, the people would not repent. They would not turn back to the Lord. And eventually judgment would arrive in the form of the Babylonians. And Judah would be defeated and they would be carried into exile. The need for light to break into the darkness and provide truth and grace and salvation and reconciliation and healing was, was incredibly great. It's no less great for us today. The context for us today is very different, of course. The people of God are not just one single nation. Uh, we're not under threat of exile. But the darkness of our world is still a reality. The darkness within our own hearts is something that we know if we're willing to be honest. We may not fashion wood and gold and silver into literal idols that we worship. But the sin of idolatry is deep in our own hearts. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We can turn almost anything into an idol. We can see the darkness of this world in so many different ways. We can see the darkness in a global pandemic that is far worse and far more deadly than COVID. That of abortion and the lack of the sanctity of human life. We can see the darkness and the brokenness and the fallenness of our own bodies and our minds. We can see the darkness and the way that we and others treat and speak to other image bearers of the one true God, creator God. The need of the light of God's truth and grace, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ is as great now as it, is, as it has was in the time of Isaiah. And the more that we would understand the darkness, the more that we would understand the darkness of this world, the more that we will understand and appreciate and even celebrate when we hear Isaiah's words in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We see 
not just the need that we have and the need that the people had in the days of Isaiah, but we see the provision that God makes for the people of God. Isaiah describes what that provision would be. He calls it a light. A light would come into the world. A light would come into the deep darkness of the world. But he goes on to describe it not just as a light. He says what that light will be. And when he does, perhaps it's a bit surprising or, dis- or confusing. I suspect it was to the people as they heard it originally. He says that the light that was seen by the people walking in darkness, the light that would shine on those dwelling in a land of deep darkness is what in verse 6? It's a child. It's a baby. It's a man. You can imagine the people that were reading this for the first time saying, here is here's the light that's coming into the darkness of this world. Some great power, some great majestic power. It's a child. It's a, it's a human being. And as I, Isaiah tells them the what of the provision, this light, this child, we don't have to wonder who. It is. Now, Isaiah doesn't say it specifically. We're going to see in a minute that he describes this one, this child that would be born. But he doesn't say specifically who it was. But the Bible has been very specific and very explicit in telling us who this light is. Who is the child that has come into the world? In fact, Jesus himself tells us. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus had gone through his baptism. And then he had gone through a time of temptation in the wilderness by the devil himself. And then he began his public ministry. And as he begins his public ministry, this is what we read in Matthew chapter 4. And leaving Nazareth, he, that's Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus demonstrated who Isaiah was talking about. The child is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus was the answer to the prophecy of Isaiah. He is the light. He is the child that would come into the darkness. Now notice Isaiah gives us a description of the child, a description of of Jesus. Now we know that is Jesus coming into this world. And he gave four specific titles, each one with two parts, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The light coming into the darkness would be a child. The child would be a man named Jesus. But this Jesus was not just a man. We understand from these titles that he's speaking about Jesus as the God-man. He would be the wonderful counselor. That is the God who understands us and our needs. He's wonderful. Now when we hear that word, our connotations is a feeling. I feel wonderful today. Isn't it a wonderful day? It has a, has a sense of a feeling or uh, an emotion. It can be subjective. But the word here in Hebrew for wonderful has the sense of something that is miraculous. Something that is supernatural. In Psalm 78, the same word is used to describe the parting of the Red Sea during the Exodus. The, the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. This 
one who would come. Jesus, the Christ child, would be fully man, but he would be more. He would be supernatural. He would be divine. This would be God in the flesh. He's not only wonderful, he's the wonderful counselor. Now, this isn't saying that Jesus would be a great therapist. It has a sense of royal wisdom. The context would have been ancient kings who would draw counselors around them to give them wisdom in knowing how to rule and to reign. And Isaiah says the one who would come, Jesus, the Christ child who would bring the light into the darkness, would not have just earthly wisdom. He would have divine wisdom and knowledge and need of no other counselors. This is the one who would enter into our lives and fully understand our needs and our experiences. Isn't that what we read in Hebrews chapter 4? We read that Jesus was tempted as we are in every way and yet without sin. That he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is the wonderful counselor who has entered into our lives, into our world. I came across a Dorothy Sayers quote this past week. She said, The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall into a condition of being limited and sorrowing and being subject to death. But he nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born into poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us, and he thought it well worth his while. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He enters into our situation, into our world, into the darkness of this world. He is the God who understands us and our needs. But he's also mighty God, the God who goes to battle for us. In Hebrew, the word God actually comes first. El Gabor. He is God Almighty. He would be born as a human with actual parents and develop in the womb naturally. But this was not just a human. This is God in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity. Very God of very God. Who along with the Father and the Holy Spirit brought all things into creation out of nothing. And sustains creation at every moment by the very word of his power. This is God in the flesh. This is God Almighty. The word mighty there is used to describe in the Hebrew a hero or a great warrior. Jesus would be the great warrior God. The one who goes to battle for his people and his purposes. As we talked about last week with Genesis chapter 3, because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's sin, there's enmity in the world. There is, there is discord. And Almighty God, God the warrior God, enters into the enmity and the hostility and the war zone in order to go to battle for His people. As we conclude our service later, we'll sing together, Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And verse 3 says this, Rank on rank the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish and the darkness clears away. This is, this is language of a battle. 
has the overtones of military. The power of darkness will vanish and will be cleared away by God Almighty who will come into the darkness. Jesus would be our sovereign and omnipotent God in the flesh and he will go to battle for us. He will defeat the darkness and evil. He is the wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the God who adopts us into his family never to be lost. He's everlasting. He's never ending. Without end, he is eternal. The king of King David died. His son and heir Solomon became king and then he died. The kingdom was divided into the north and the south, into Israel and Judah. The kings of the north, the kings of Israel all died. The northern kingdom was ripped apart and defeated and taken into exile. The kings of the southern kingdom of Judah all died. And eventually Judah would be carried away, conquered and exiled. But as Isaiah says, and as David had been promised, a Messiah would come. Jesus would come and he would be different. His ruling, his reigning would be everlasting. He would never be defeated. He would conquer death. He is everlasting. He is the everlasting father. Now, when you hear that, it might be a little confusing. I mean, is Isaiah confusing the first and the second person of the Trinity? Jesus is the son. But here he's being referred to as the father. Is, is Isaiah simply articulating the ancient heresy of modalism? One God in three different modes? That is not what Isaiah is saying. That's not what the scriptures teach. God is one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son didn't send the Father into the world. The Holy Spirit wasn't born to the Virgin Mary. Each has their role and their person, but it's one God. Isaiah is simply explaining to us by calling Jesus the everlasting Father, that the Messiah who would come to be the light of the world, Jesus Christ, would show His people the love and the care and the compassion of a good Father to His children. That it's through Jesus and Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection that we would be adopted into the family of God. He is the everlasting Father. Through Him we are adopted and secured into God's family. And because He is everlasting, we have no fear of ever being lost or forsaken. He is the wonderful Counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. And He is the Prince of Peace. He is the God who will bring sovereign peace. He is the Prince the Hebrew word has a sense of royal authority or a royal administrator. Jesus is the royal administrator of God's peace. And just look at the language in verses 6 and 7. The government will be on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government and peace. He will establish and uphold the throne and the kingdom. And he will do so with justice and righteousness forevermore. As we read in verse 4, He will be the one that will break the yoke of our burden. He will crush the staff that is weighing down on our shoulders. He will break the rod of our oppressors. We will be under the reign and the rule of Prince Jesus. And because He is the Prince, He commands our submission. 
He commands our obedience. And sometimes we might hear people talk about how they, uh, they, they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then sometime later in their life, they, they bow their knee to Him as Lord and in obedience to His Word. I don't think that's a helpful way of talking about the Christian life. One cannot accept Christ as their Savior and not as, his, as their Lord. Prince Jesus calls us to believe in Him as our Savior and submit to Him as our Lord. As a pastor friend of mine likes to say, the life that Jesus redeems, He rules. The heart that Jesus cleanses, He commands. He is the Prince. And because He is, He demands our submission to Him. But He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Shalom. It's more than just the absence of war or hostility. It is true that Jesus would defeat all of God's enemies and He would bring an end to war and enmity and hostility. But the sense of Him being the Prince of Peace also includes the secure, positive, objective harmony that God's people now have with God Himself. That's what the angels declared, isn't it? Luke chapter 2, as they witnessed the birth of this Christ child, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus said it himself as well in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And of course, Paul spoke about it in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, Prince Jesus, with the royal authority and power who commands our obedience, will use his sovereign power and authority to secure lasting and eternal peace between God and his people. This is this is the wonderful provision that Isaiah is telling us about that God has made for dealing with the spiritual and the physical darkness of the world. But before we end, we need to see the way that all of this is going to be accomplished. You can see that it is going to be something that only God can accomplish. You can see that as Isaiah ends the passage in verse 7, the very end of verse 7. He ends by saying these words, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is being clear. All of what he has described here is only by God's doing. You can also see it in verses 3 through 5. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The problem of the darkness of this world, the curses that were incurred by Adam and Eve at the fall for all of humanity are too big for us to fix. This is a problem that only the Lord of hosts can take care of. We can't make peace between ourselves and God. We're the problem. Left to ourselves, we will be continuing to be a people who are walking in darkness. We will continue to be a people who live in a land of deep darkness. But thanks be to God, we have the promise that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it.
And that also helps us to understand that the way he accomplishes this is not only by its own doing, but it's by his grace. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is the language of the giving of a gift. Something that we receive. Not anything that we can gain by effort. All of this work that Isaiah is describing and that Jesus accomplished is a gift from God. It is by God's grace. It is nothing that we can merit. It is nothing that we can deserve. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. All that Isaiah is describing, all that Jesus accomplished is a gift given to us. And although it's a gift given completely by grace, something that can't be earned, something that can't be achieved, it's still something that must be received. It's a gift that must be received. The gift of the child born, the gift of a son given is a gift to be received. This is language that is personal and relational. We don't get the gift by being a faithful church attender. We don't get the gift by being born into a wonderful Christian family. We don't get the gift by serving faithfully in the kingdom. All of those are wonderful things for God's people. But that's not how the gift is received. The gift is to be received by faith. By God's grace, Jesus is to be taken in and embraced and believed and submitted to a living and ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning or if you're online this morning and you haven't received that free gift, you haven't embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you need to understand that what the Bible is saying is that the curse of Genesis chapter 3 is still true for you. You are still at enmity with the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. To be in Christ means that on the cross, Jesus took the full fury of God's wrath and judgment on himself for us. And he credits us with his righteousness. But if you're not in Christ, then you are left alone to bear the experience and the reality of the wrath and the judgment Of the Lord God Almighty. So let today be the day when you receive the gracious gift of God. The greatest gift that's ever been given. Given by grace and received by faith. Now before we finish, one last thing. Not only do we understand that this was done by God's doing and it's only by His grace. But because this is something that God does... It means that for God's people, we can have certainty in the midst of the darkness. Again, how he ends the passage, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We look around and we see and we feel the evidence of darkness. We look into our own lives and into our own hearts and we can see it as well. And it is so easy as God's people to lose hope and doubt that the Lord is good and faithful. Imagine these people that were reading this for the first time or hearing it for the first time. 
It had been so long since the promise of Genesis 3.15 had been given. Every generation since that time period had been reminded of the promise. But the darkness was looming large in the land. David had been promised an eternal heir and kingdom. And yet the people of Isaiah's day were looking around and seeing the kingdom in shambles. They were watching people being carried away in exile. They were looking and seeing the people of God worshiping and serving false gods. And you have to imagine they had to say, where was God? It's so easy to lose hope and doubt that God is good. That God is faithful to His promises. But the promise arrived. Light did break into the darkness. A child was born. The Messiah came into the world. God in human flesh, fully God and fully man, and through His life and death and resurrection, He defeated the darkness once and for all, ending the curse between God and man. So if you believe that that is true, then you can know with certainty that the lasting effects of the fall will come to an end one day. As we wait now for Jesus' second advent, His second coming, His return, we do so still experiencing the residual lasting effects of the darkness. But as God's people hoping and trusting in the truth, don't be overcome with doubt and despair. Because Jesus came the first time, He will come the second time. So don't give up. Don't give in to temptation. Trust the Lord's promises. Stand firm and be people of true hope. Let's pray together. Father, we we come before you and we acknowledge and we confess that it is so often difficult for us to be people of hope. As we look around, as we experience the residual effects of darkness that we that we still have in our world, that we still have in our own hearts. It is so easy for us to lose hope. It is easy for us even to despair, to be tempted to doubt that you are the God that we read about in Isaiah 9. In those moments, Father, we pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, through the power of your word, You would flood our minds and our hearts with the truth of what your word says. And in those moments when we are prone to despair and to doubt, prone to give in to temptation, that you would fill us with your word in such a way that we would be strengthened to believe and to have hope in the promises of Jesus Christ's return. Help us to long for that day. And as we do, enable us to live faithfully for you here. Would you enable us to be your little lights in the communities in which you've placed us? Enable us to be beacons of your light and truth and grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.